Halloween, a time of tricks, treats, and mischief. Our story begins as three unsuspecting trick-or-treating teens go looking for trouble and get more than they bargained for. Hey, wait up, guys. Where have you been, Loomis? I had to grab some candy from old man Regan's place. Well, it kind of looks like all the kids are done for the night. What do you think, Ben? When you come to my place, we could listen to some meatloaf and do some Richie's plank experience on the Oculus. It'd be cool, man. Sounds fun, but I was kind of hoping to do something exciting tonight. It is Halloween, after all. Have you guys heard about the old house on Benedict? People say it's abandoned, but I swear I've seen a light on there before, and sometimes I hear weird music and strange voices coming from that place. Let's check it out. I don't know. Come on, Bill. Stop acting like an old man. I want to see it. This is it. You've seen it, and it looks abandoned. Let's go. Looks like the front door is cracked open. I'm going inside. Ugh! I'm pretty sure this place isn't abandoned. It smells like bourbon and Domino's pizza in here. And what's up with all of these empty cardboard shipping boxes? They're everywhere. Hold up. I think I hear something upstairs. Don't go up there! The unsuspecting group walked slowly through the pile of empty cardboard shipping boxes to ascend the stairway, unsure of what lies ahead. They slowly open the door and navigate down a short hallway. As they round a corner, they enter a large room, the walls lined with dusty, weirdly named boxes. In the center of the room, three men, half in shadow, half in the light of a single bare bulb, are hunched over a table, pondering over numerous wooden and plastic bits. Ugh, this game is so arbitrary. There's no control. It's rigged against you. Oh, hello. You guys want to play a game? We shouldn't have come here. I know what this is. These are the Hidden Gems guys. They play really bad games. Well, you don't have to play this game. How about a game of Niagara? Or perhaps a game of Hard Tort? Why are you talking to those weird voices, you freak? The door is locked! We can't get out! Hey, we don't have to play a game. I've got some cool shows we could watch. Have you guys seen Black Summer? Th th that show is terrible! I'll admit, it's not for everybody, but it really starts getting good after the first few episodes. He said it's not for everybody! That means it's bad! Let's get out of here! Wait! There's a window over there. Let's go. Such a shame. They seem nice. So... I got this new pirate-themed game in the mail yesterday. It's got like eight ratings on BGG. It looks cool. You guys want to try it out? Arr! I finally get to use my pirate voice. Uh, I guess I'll play it. As long as it isn't random. Let me see the rulebook. It's got some really cool mechanisms. And plenty of tension, which you know I like. It's also got this cool auction mechanic. Hidden Gems. Episode 19. Ah, ah, ah. The Halloween Spectacular. Welcome to Hidden Gems, a board game podcast where we review unusual, forgotten, and underappreciated board games. We're your hosts. My name is Chris. I'm Jason. And I'm Cameron. 
Thanks for listening to our show! <laughs> you do it so much better than I do. I contemplated letting you do the opener for no. this episode. You did a great job. And I was like, dang it, no. I'm doing it this time. I just had to channel my inner count. Oh, yes. It was a valiant effort. I tried. I did the best I could. Oh, man. How about that opener, huh? That was awesome. So much fun. Big oh, thanks yeah. to Bill and Eric and... Who's that other guy? <laughs> Who else did it? Who else was in this with us? <laughs> the guy that's been begging to be on the podcast since we started. Ben. Thank you, Ben. Ben, ben. finally got on the show. Finally on the show. <laughs> oh, dude. Well, honestly, Chris, you had such a vision for this. Mm-hmm. Chris sends us this thing. He's like, guys, I don't know. Should we try this? And it's just been really, really fun to refine it and put it together. Send it to us like three days before the episode is supposed to drop. <laughs> I did. Right. We put this together at the witching hour, folks, but I had a vision of what I wanted it to sound like and look like, and I was like, man, let's just give it a go and just see yeah. how it sounds. Jason did a rough draft, and I was like, we definitely need to do it. After hearing what Jason did with the sound effects and everything. Dude, that was so fun. I think I missed my calling in life. I think I need to be like a sound effects editor. That was yeah. so a, much fun to put that together. Or a movie director. When yeah. Ben, Bill, and Eric were in here reading their lines, Jason was like, Say it in this voice. Try it again this way with more passion, with more feeling. Think about your girlfriend that broke up with you that one time when you were in high school. Uh, So much fun. Also, how about that opening tune? So freaking cool, man. That is is the compliments of the one and only Travis Lockie, Mm -hmm. Arundel. Yep. By some Very folks. Stranger Things vibe. Oh, yes. He did a fantastic job. We got very excited about the idea of, hey, Travis, do you want to do our theme song for us? But for Halloween, he was like, dude, yes. <laughs> yeah. As we've said before on the show, so awesome that we have him to do our own custom oh, music. Yeah. And when you sent it to us prior to recording, like Jason said, he nailed it on the head because the first thing that popped into my head was Stranger Things yeah. when it started playing, but to our song, yeah. right? Which yeah, I thought it's, was really well it's done. awesome. I remember hanging out with him a while back and he showed me an interview with the folks that actually made the music for Stranger Things and they like really researched the era that they were after yeah. and that sort of thing and came up with that vibe. It definitely has nostalgia. The music helps communicate that, I think. Yeah, it's popular these days to hate on Stranger Things because mm-hmm. just like anything that gets popular, then people start to hate it but i think it's a well done show and like you said for me the biggest draw is that nostalgic feel i mean they nail the 80s oh yeah for sure so good in that show when they do the star court mall thing yeah i mean that's my childhood yeah you know like (laughs) you went to the mall right right, and had ice cream and walked around it was like a community experience feels like now i was at the mall not long ago they're dying dude oh for sure yeah yeah it's kind of sad really yeah i grew up with that too though same thing there's nothing like it nowadays. Yeah. Nothing to do in Pennsylvania other than go to the mall. You had malls in Pennsylvania in the 80s? <laughs> Probably more than they had here. Yeah. Well, thanks again to Travis for just killing it on the intro music for us this week. Really well done. Yeah. So as we mentioned, this is our Halloween spectacular. We'll try to make it as spectacular as possible. Is it a spooktacular? A spooktacular episode of Hidden Gems. <laughs> and we really want to try to focus this episode as much as possible on Halloween themed material. I think we all enjoy the holiday and we're going to try to center our discussion as much around as possible. So for Jason and I, we're going to talk about a graphic novel series that we've been reading that I've been specifically saving for this episode. Uh, Because I thought it felt so well. We've been reading through the graphic novel, Harrow County. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So we're not through it yet. I have one more volume to go of the four-volume library edition set. And I think, Jason, you've got two more to go, right? Yep. Yeah. It's only four volumes, though, so it's very approachable. 
for sure. It's very doable. Wouldn't take very long to get through if you can find it. <laughs> That's one thing. It's a little hard to find, at least the hard covers at this point, but you can get the back issues pretty easily. But Harrow County, just to give you a little bit of background, it's written by Cullen Bunn and drawn by Tyler Crook and published by Dark Horse Comics. So if you know anything about Dark Horse Comics, they love this spooky, dark material. They're actually one of my favorite comic book publishers. Go figure. So as I mentioned, this was written by Cullen Bunn, and he's actually from rural eastern North Carolina, Mm. um, the Cape Fear region of North Carolina, which is not very far from where Cameron... Where I went to college. And then I'm from a little ways up the coast on eastern North Carolina, yeah. Yeah, so when I was reading through this graphic novel, the first thing I'll say about it is it was feeling very familiar to me. I think they do a really good job of making you feel like you're in Harrow County. Mm. And the whole time I was reading it, I was like, man, I just feel like I've been to this place. Mm-hmm. And then Jason, after I loaned him the first hardcover, said, hey, did you know that this was set in North Carolina? And I was like, oh, obviously, yeah. I should have made that connection. You right? obviously didn't read the extra material in the back. <laughs> I didn't. I did. Gotta read the footnotes, Gotta Chris. read the footnotes. But when he said that, I was like, that makes total sense. Because if you've ever been to the North Carolina, South Carolina coast, the low country mm-hmm. of the coastal Carolinas, this is where that story takes place. And they capture that really well. Particularly, there's a lot of stuff surrounding the Gullah culture in North mm-hmm. and South Carolina, if you're familiar with that. This book focuses on that mm-hmm. in a very interesting way. I'm enjoying it quite a bit. What do you think, Jason? What are your thoughts on it so far? Yeah, I've enjoyed it so far. Like you said, I'm only halfway through, so I'm not entirely sure where it's going yet. But I read the first volume and was curious, but the jury was out because it's a slow build in the first volume. The second volume really starts to flesh out the mythology of this place, whatever it happens to be, right? Mm. Yeah, I'm enjoying it so far. It's definitely got good creepy vibes to it. I I have too. It's really solid, folks. If you can track down copies of it, I highly recommend checking it out. I've enjoyed it so far. And one of the things that it does that I really enjoy, not just in horror or spooky type stories, but just in stories in general, is if you actually feel like the place or the location is a character. Mm. Things that come to mind for me would be like Bioshock, the video game. Right. That world felt like a character. Mm. Or the hotel in The Shining Mm -hmm. feels like a character, right? In this graphic novel, Harrow County, the county itself feels like a person. Mm. (laughs) Like it has a personality or it changes depending on its mood, so, so to speak. And there's a lot of story connected to the county. And Jason, even before we were talking, what even is Harrow County? Is it even a place, right? Yeah, I was trying to figure out if it is actually a real place in the context of the story. Uh, And I don't know. I haven't made it far enough through to find out. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting in that way. Hmm. No spoilers here. I won't talk too long, but just to give you an idea what the story is about, in Mm -hmm. case you might want to check it out. So Harrow County is a story about a witch named Emmy. She's 18 years old, and she grows up in Harrow County in a place that was haunted by a witch by the name of Hester Beck. Okay? And there's a whole lot of backstory about Hester Beck that I won't go into, but basically she's a bad witch. Mm -hmm. Okay? Evil witch. And people within the county through the course of events in the story, come to believe that Emmy is a reincarnated version of Hester Beck. Mm. And so they begin to turn on her and try to kill her. And she's trying to convince them that she is not her, that she's not Mm. Hester, and that she's good. But is she really good? Is she really Hester, right? These are questions that you begin to ask yourself over the course of the story. And it introduces a lot of interesting characters. So one that they touch on are something called Haints. And this is something Jason was mentioning yeah, before so we came in. It's a Carolina's term. It I is. Guess, for spirits or ghosts or something. Yeah. Like it's, a haunt? 
A haint? Right. Yeah. Huh. It's a low country Gullah term, okay. actually, for evil spirits in coastal Carolinas. Oh, wow. And there are many different versions, my favorite being the skinless boy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, it sounds bad. Yeah. But yeah, he's a skinless boy, basically, okay. who runs around and serves Emmy. Her his, familiar. It's her familiar, right? Yeah. She carries his skin Ew. in her satchel. Gross. <laughs> and it talks to her. It like mumbles. Skin does? Yes. Yeah, when that happened in the first volume, I was like, what is this? What am I reading? <laughs> but it kind of makes sense in the larger context of the story. Yeah. But, Sorry, I'm just imagining this character sorting through her bag. She's like, oh, I got some skin. I got yeah. some eyeballs. She just carries like, it around with her like it's no big deal, but it will whisper things to her, secrets, and helps her. You just have to read it. I know it sounds crazy. And like I said, it's a horror story, uh-huh. but it is a really interesting one. Hmm. Really digging it so far. Harrow County. I will say, I have to mention the art because I feel like the art in this is phenomenal. I agree. I especially love the splash pages for each of the, I guess, the episodes. What what are they called? Each Issues. issue. The, the yeah. opener of the issue, yeah. Yeah, it's a full double page mm-hmm. spread and they somehow managed to incorporate the Harrow County yes. title into the picture and it's just super creative so the way they cool. do it. They might yeah. be standing in a graveyard and mm-hmm. then the tombstones will read... Harrow County. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It is awesome. Sweet. Well, should we talk about Halloween stuff? Oh, yes. Let's do it. Yeah, so as I mentioned, I love Halloween. I feel like this time of the year, I think this is probably a lot of people's favorite time of the year. I know it is for me growing up in North Carolina. This just feels like the entering into three months of fun. You know what I mean? Yeah. Fun either through holidays or festivals or celebrations or just fun with your family. Yeah. You know, I mean, for us, it's because the weather is actually the kind of pleasant. Phenomenal. Yeah. Finally, in mid mid October, starts to feel like fall. It does. Yeah. And in Western North Carolina, where I grew up, at this time of the year, when you get up in the morning, the air has that crispness mm-hmm. to it. If you're from there, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. But there's a noticeable change in the atmosphere. Yeah. (laughs) For lack of a better word, you feel it, right? Yep. I just love that. It feels like you're entering a new part of the year, right? Yeah. And for me, Halloween is the first big event. Mm -hmm. And my family, well, I want us to all talk about our experiences with it. But I know for my family, it's a really big event. Right. We always did it up really (laughs) big. And that's carried over to me and my kids as well. But before I talk about my stuff, Cameron, how was Halloween for you? Yeah, we had a pretty family-oriented neighborhood, the street that I grew up in, which is actually the street that my dad grew up on, believe it or not. And so it was all cousins and other relatives and friends that we had known for a long time who have lived on the street forever. And so for us, it was my parents' opportunity to basically dress us up real cute in cowboy outfits. And (laughs) I think I was Luke Skywalker five or six times and a ninja and a Power Ranger and that kind of stuff. And to like show us off, here here are my cute kids, please give them candy type of thing. (laughs) And then we always did this thing at church where we saw all of our friends from school and church and whatever right right and the parking lot had all the games set up you know you can like put a fishing pole in there and they'll clip a piece of candy to it or you know do a beanbag toss and a hayride and that kind of stuff so that was always our big event if you will for halloween was the trick-or-treating in our neighborhood and then games and stuff at church that's awesome how about you jason yeah for us halloween it wasn't a huge deal for our family but we definitely got into it my dad went to art school and was in advertising my whole childhood growing up. So he was big into doing big artistic productions or whatever. So for a while, this died off real soon, but for a while, my parents got into making the really elaborate Halloween costumes. And so (laughs) my most vivid memory of that was that my brother, who's three years older than me, and I were Gumby and Pokey 
for, for Halloween. I think I was probably <laughs> like four at the time. Yeah. And so we had these huge cardboard box costumes. I was pokey, of course. <laughs> it was painted orange. I had the big, you know, half styrofoam ball eyes on the sides. So I remember that pretty vividly. And remember having the paint scrubbed off my face after. Oh, after yeah, the worst part. Yeah. Another interesting Halloween tidbit about me, I guess, is because my dad was in advertising, he worked for the advertising firm who supported a lot of the chocolate companies in Pennsylvania. He actually did some work for Hershey's, but I was actually in a print ad for, <laughs> of course you not, not for Hershey, but for a, a different chocolate company, like a local one. That's so crazy. I think I was a dinosaur and we were trick-or-treating in front of a house. <laughs> I have tried desperately to find a copy of this ad. <laughs> <laughs> to just have a copy of it for my own. I haven't been able to come up with a copy of it, but if I ever do, it will get publicized somehow. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I would say for us, Halloween, it wasn't just a holiday. It was an event. Mm. My dad and my uncle, Alan, loved Halloween. Mm-hmm. And I remember I always used to go trick-or-treating, me and my sister and my three cousins, every year, all the way up into high school. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I trick-or-treated until I was 18 years old. <laughs> oh, I went in high school, too. I mean, I had no shame. I, I think Free now candy, people, man. I know, right? And nobody really cared, but I mean, I did all the way up to college. Okay. I trick or treated just because I loved it so much. But we would start early. I mean, as early as you could start, wow. really. And we would go until around nine or nine thirty. And I remember we would dump it in the trunk of the car, and you just couldn't see the bottom of the trunk anymore. We just had this huge haul, right? Yeah. And the only reason we didn't go later is in our community where I grew up in Fairview, we have an old basketball gymnasium that is now a community center. And people would come from all over the community as the night was winding down, and we would do games and mm-hmm. dancing, and it was just fun. Yeah, yeah. It's like a fall festival type okay. of thing. We were doing cakewalks. Do oh, you know what cakewalks cake walk, are? Yeah. I think missed out on the cakewalks. I was like, oh, it's not candy. Why would I want that? Uh, there was always really freshly baked stuff. Oh, yeah. Like local stuff. I, yeah. I had never heard of this term before coming to the South. Really? And, I, and I'm not 100% sure I even know what it is now. It's so like you're musical have to chairs except With for pastries. If, yeah. Or you cakes. Get, you get cakes at huh. the end. Oh, man. The cakewalk was a big deal. Oh, yeah. So basically, if you don't know what it is, they put numbers on the floor, like 1 through 20 or whatever, and they play music, and you walk in a circle around these numbers and then when the music stops, wherever you're standing, that's your mm. number. And then they call the number. And whoever's number is called, you get a cake, basically. Right. It's a cakewalk. So stuff like that. The gymnasium had a basement under it where they did a haunted house thing Ooh, that yeah. you could walk through. Just really solid memories. And it has carried over in my life because mm-hmm. now with my boys, we go for it. Oh, y'all right. go all out. We go for it big time. And all your friends benefit from it. For That's the next exactly right. six months, you've got Reese's Cups and... <laughs> Bags of candy. So we start around 6 o'clock, and we go until the porch lights are off. And wow. I will tell you, many times we have knocked on a door, gotten candy, and then as we're walking away, the porch light gets flipped off. <laughs> <laughs> you can't leave your porch light on when the alleys are out because yeah. we're going to hit you, yeah. especially if it's a weekend. So after we're done, we take everything back home and we do the ceremonial dumping (laughs) (laughs) where I take all the candy and I dump it on the children in the living room floor and then we sort. It's literally raining candy. Yeah, raining candy and we sort it by type. Takes us about... 45 minutes yeah. to do because I think our current standing record is 36 pounds of oh candy, I think. Yeah. We got, like, it fills it, up like a queen-size pillowcase. <laughs> it really good. does. It really does. <laughs> 
So yeah, we just love it. Kids love it. I really enjoy doing it. It's always a good time. And then we eat bags of candy on game nights until February. Oh, for months. <laughs> easily, easily. So yeah, good times on Halloween. So before we transition over to the reviews, I just wanted to ask you guys a couple of more rapid fire mm. Halloween related questions because okay. you know how I love to do this kind of stuff. All this right. This is the scariest part of the episode. <laughs> do not talk about these ahead of time. Question number one, pillowcase or pail? Do you even know what I mean when I, I say do. that? I do. I'm going to go with a third option and say newspaper delivery bag. <laughs> okay. That's, that's what I used. I delivered newspapers in high school, and I would just take the newspaper delivery bag over my shoulder and fill it. <laughs> okay. We always said the typical pail, the jack-o'-lantern-shaped yeah. pail. Oh, see, we, that's the no wrong one, answer. No one enlightened us to the whole <laughs> pillowcase thing. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. The first time I took the boys out trick-or-treating, I started grabbing the pillowcases off the bed. <laughs> and Talia's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, we're going trick-or-treating, getting the pillowcases. And she's like, you don't put candy in a pillowcase. And I was like, yeah, you do. This is how you do it. How much candy are you trying to get, Talia? And so we had a long discussion about how she thought it was ridiculous that we were using pillowcases. And then years later, I was vindicated by Stranger Things. Because if you watch Stranger Things, they use use their pillowcases. Because that's what we did in the 80s and in the 90s when you trick-or-treated. You put your candy in a pillowcase. Right. You can never get the candy out of those pails. Once it's in there, you flip it over and nothing comes out. It's, oh, I think we say it was like the monkey trap thing. You put your hand inside to get the piece <laughs> of candy that you want. You clench your fist around and then you can't get your hand well, out. Well, that too, maybe. <laughs> Not to mention, those pails don't hold crap. No. When you're doing varsity trick-or-treating like we are, we're going pillowcases. You know, commercialism, yeah. right? You can't sell pillowcases at Walgreens. That's true. <laughs> Correct answer is pillowcases. All right. <laughs> Question two. Favorite Halloween song? Ghostbusters theme. Nice. My kids love it. Yeah, I would have to go with that as well. Yeah, I enjoy that one. For me, it's got to be Thriller. Oh, right, yeah. Although I will say in recent years, I've started enjoying Somebody's Watching Me a lot more. I don't know that one. I don't know that one. Oh, you definitely do. Sing it. (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) I always feel like somebody's watching me. You never heard that song before? No. Nope, but that's definitely staying in the final edit of this <laughs> yeah, episode. Yeah, absolutely. All right, well, I'll play it for you after okay, okay. this is over. My kids love that song. I've heard it. I know okay. what you're talking about. Jason just wanted to hear me sing it. Oh, yeah. All right. Count Chocula, Boo Berry, or Frankenberry? Count Chocula all the way. <sighs> I'm ashamed to say that I don't think I've ever had any of those. What? Yeah. What? They honestly all kind of sound gross. No. Plain Rice Krispies? We were a plain cereal family. My (laughs) my parents didn't spring for the good cereals. The best we got was Cinnamon Toast Crunch on occasion. Dude, when I'm in the grocery store, when the Count Chocula and Booberry and Frankenberry hit the shelves, I'm like, got my arm out and I'm like... (laughs) (laughs) Just like knocking them off into my cart. They're like the McRib of Halloween, right? You know, it only comes out one month out of the year. And I love it. For me, it's Count Chocula as well. I like that you start out with normal milk and you end up with chocolate (laughs) indeed. I will say, Frankenberry is a close second. For me, okay. which is the hardest one to find. Okay. And I don't know why that is. You can always find blueberries. Is that like akin to the Crunch Berries, like Captain Crunch style cereal? It's basically just like Count Chocula, but it's fruity flavored. Oh, okay. Gotcha. It's pink. Okay. Orangey pink. Yeah. Well, what's your must watch Halloween movie if you have one? I don't think I have one. Well, you don't like watching scary movies around this time? I've never been a big horror movie fan in general. People rag on it for not being really all that scary, but 
a bunch of us went and saw The Ring in college, and I think I've been scarred ever since then. And so <laughs> that is a scary movie. It's a freaky movie. But yeah, we've never been big on horror movies. I've been trying to convince Jenny to watch The Shining with me for like Great a movie. long time now because I read the book a few years ago mm-hmm. and really enjoyed the book, but she won't do it. Maybe someday. That's good. Yeah, I'm also not very big on scary movies myself. Yeah. I, I, I do appreciate The Shining. I mean, as a film major, I feel like I at least have to say that. It's a great movie. I think I appreciate the thriller-type movies, the mm-hmm. suspense-type movies, much more so than anything that's gory or demonic or anything like that. Right, like, right. You know, ghosts or whatever. I mean, obviously, Ghostbusters is a, awesome a great movie. one, but, yeah. you know, it's a little lame to have the same answer for both. <laughs> it can be your answer. If you had to really nail it down for me, I would probably pick Ghostbusters just because there's so many iconic, sure. memorable lines from it. Don't cross the streams and all that. Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> yeah. Puff Marshmallow guy. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> just what my son looks like frequently. <laughs> I love cheesy, slasher, gory horror movies from the 80s. Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th. Love that stuff. As a kid, <laughs> used to watch that regularly. So You let your kids watch it? No. <laughs> But my mom did. I think I've talked about this on here before, but my parents had a very loose parenting style. Probably too loose. But back then, those shows came on cable TV all the time. Right. Especially on Halloween. There was the channel uh, USA. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Would just run Friday the 13th oh my all the time right. on TV. Yeah. Right? Somewhat edited, but it was still on. And I had a mm-hmm. TV in my room, so uh, okay. I just watched them right. all the time. Tales from the Crypt. Okay. Loved it. Watched it all the time. But for me... My must-watch Halloween movie is Hocus Pocus. Oh, I could see that being a good one. Yeah. I like watching it with the kids. It's nostalgic for me. Yeah, yeah. I enjoy the movie. It's not scary at all. Yeah, it's not. But I like it. Okay. Yeah. haven't seen that one either. (laughs) No? (laughs) I don't think. Maybe. You might have. Bette Midler. I know what it is. It's almost more of a comedy, right? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Jason, I think you've already answered this question. What's your favorite or most memorable Halloween costume? Yeah. Pokey, for sure. Pokey. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So we were pretty into Halloween costumes. So my mom was the music director. She did all the music and the like pageants and everything. So we had all of the costume materials and stuff stored up for certain holidays. And we would always pull them out and apply them to our Halloween costumes. So I typically had some pretty good ones. I would say she made me a very convincing Luke Skywalker tunic. Nice. One time, and it was around the time when they started making the retractable lightsaber toys. Mm-hmm. So I had like the legit looking like handle that would like fling it out and has the noises and stuff. So definitely a Luke Skywalker. I had a pretty good Leonardo Ninja Turtle. Nice. Leonardo was my Ninja Turtle of choice. Nice. That's awesome. Yeah, I think for me, obviously, trick-or-treating through high school, I've dressed up as a lot of things. But I think the ones that always end up being the most memorable are mm. the ones you make yourself. Yeah. And I remember one year... I made a very simple one. It was Jason Voorhees from okay. Friday the 13th. Uh, my father is a carpenter, and so he had coveralls oh, that wow. he would wear when it gets cold. Right. You know, like those blue coveralls. And so I took those. I had a little plastic machete, and I just Jackson Pollock threw some red paint <laughs> oh on gosh. this plastic machete <laughs> and threw it on my hockey mask or whatever. And best costume ever. I loved it. I just really enjoyed that one. It sticks out in my mind. Yeah. As being Actually, I just thought of, there's one more. And when I answered before, I was thinking about, as a kid, my costumes. The best one that I've probably ever done, and I think this is like the pinnacle of dressing up for Halloween for me, is in my 20s, 
I went as Carl Fredrickson from the movie Up, the Pixar movie. Oh, yeah. And I, I mean, I nailed it, too. I had the hair. I had the glasses. I made a little bottle cap pin and a corduroy brown jacket. How did you make yourself whiter than you were tall? Well, I, you know, I, I didn't quite make myself have very square features, but I did at the time I, I was leading a small group with, what is Doug's last name? Doug Porter. That's yeah, right. Yeah. I was leading a small group with him and you know, he has really dark hair. Mm-hmm. Um, he went as Russell and he made the whole like, I think I've seen pictures sash of this. and everything yeah. and like, all the little badges and stuff. Yeah. The wilderness explorer. <laughs> I have the picture and like side by side, we look like the pair from the movie. <laughs> so that's probably my favorite one of all time. That's awesome. I think that was on my dating profile. Casey will probably remember <laughs> seeing that one for when she saw me for the first time. Fantastic. That's what did it for you. <laughs> that's, why, that's, it. that's what it was. Carl Fredrickson. Carl Fredrickson and Hanabi. Yeah. All right. Last one. Least favorite Halloween candy. Ooh. There's so many. Oh, I think I know what it is. All right. So there is this one type of labelless twisty tie yep. caramel marshmallow thingy. I think it's similar to what they call a cow tail, but it's this weird caramely thing. Disgusting. Yeah, it's they're goat's caramel creams. Is that what it is? Mm-hmm. Just the most unappealing thing, <laughs> especially when next to Three Musketeers or a Twix right. or something. Or a Reese's. Or a Reese's, yeah. yeah. But it definitely those. Those are like, I don't know. Those. It's all like those. Yeah. Yeah, for me, I don't even know if they make either of these anymore, but back in the day, Definitely the sugar daddy. Mm-hmm. Those oh, were just gosh. gross and like rock hard. <laughs> or the fake candy cigarettes, which I'm, <laughs> I'm almost positive they don't make those anymore. They're just but, chalk. But those were gross too. <laughs> That's awesome. So for me, I've got several. I had to slim it down to three. Okay. So candy corn. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Gross. Oh. Candy corn is nasty. Nope. Don't like yeah. it. Nope. What Almond- is it? How it's not even corn. Why are there three different colors? The texture gets me. I feel like I'm chewing on a candle. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's waxy. Yeah. You know? No. Can't do it. My wife loves those. We always have multiple bags of them in the house. And I'm like, no one is ever going to eat these. Why are they here? Yeah, it's a weird thing. Like, some people love them. Yeah. And you either love them or you hate them. It's kind of like marshmallow peeps, you know? Some oh, people love gross, them. gross, yeah. Or you hate them. You're not really in between on that. So that one, Almond Joy and Mounds, because mm-hmm. I hate coconut. Yeah, hate coconut. Ugh. Yeah. I just throw no those good. out. And then probably the most interesting one, I'm going to tell you the name of it, and you're probably not going to know what I'm talking about, and I'm going to describe it to you, and I'm going to see if you know what I'm talking about. Mary Jane's Peanut Butter Kisses. Do you know what these are? No. No. Okay. Have you ever gotten candy in your bag before that's wrapped like a taffy, but it's black and orange? Dark, dark black wrapping labelless there's no writing on no. it it's just a dark black wrapper and a really bright orange wrapper oh yes yes you know what i'm yes, talking I about do. i think i yeah. have seen those but i probably there's never black eaten one, one. Is, they're all black and all orange and that's, yes. yes that's them okay so they're molasses taffy with peanut butter <laughs> okay in the middle and they are gross <laughs> sounds gross they somehow still manage to get in our hall every year it's because they're the quintessential halloween colors chris Who gives these out <laughs> There's some 85-year-old lady who's handing these out somewhere, I think. I used to get them a lot more when okay. I was younger. Okay. And they're, they're starting to disappear, but still, they is sneak in. Is it like a Werther's? Somehow. Kind of, I, I mean, except for, honestly, a Werther's is pretty good. I'll take <laughs> a Werther's any day, you know. <laughs> Werther's and a pecan sandy. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> it's like, you know, you just keep a pocket full of them in case you feel like offering it to somebody. That's right. Werther's. Yeah. Cheer That's up awesome. someone's day. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Good questions. Well, what sort of a cocktail are we drinking tonight, Chris? Oh, yeah. This was a fun one. Looks radioactive. It does. It does look radioactive. It does. So many ways you could go with this one, but for this episode, I decided to go with the witch's brew. So a witch's brew, if you were to look at it, I think, Jason, you actually described it really well. You said it looked like ectoplasm from, from Ghostbusters. Ghostbusters. And it looks that way. It looks... It's fluorescent. Yeah, it looks fluorescent. It looks like a firefly's rear end, basically, yeah, yeah, is what exactly. it looks like. And the reason it looks like that is because it's got Midori in it. Mm. So Midori is a melon liqueur that's green. And so it's one and a half ounces of Midori, one and a half ounces of Cointreau, or triple sec. Okay. And then an ounce of lemon juice. Okay. Which lightens it up a little bit and makes it look like that phosphorescent right. green look to it. Is the Midori sweet or is you getting the, the it sweetness is. It's mostly a little bit. from the... Okay. It's a little bit sweet, yeah. Cool. So you shake that, put it in a low ball glass, and then you're supposed to garnish it with dry ice. Yeah. Which I didn't have, which is a bummer. Mm-hmm. If you so put sad a, about that. I know. If you put a little cube of dry ice in the bottom of it, it will begin to smoke yeah. like a cauldron. Yeah. Like a beaker almost. And then spear a cherry. And that's a witch's brew. Nice. It's pretty good. It's yeah, tart. Yeah, it is tart. For sure. I like yeah, it though. It's a good one. Yeah. It's better, not too sweet. Not too bad, yeah. You better eat that cherry, Cameron. <laughs> I thought it was an olive and I was like, oh, no, no, it's definitely it's a cherry. All right. So this episode, we're talking about Halloween themed games. Yeah. Yes. Yes, we are. So as it turns out, and this is not surprising, there are a lot of Halloween themed mm. games. Not a lot for many other holidays like Christmas or Easter or Thanksgiving, as many right. as you would think, but mm-hmm. Halloween is flush right. with games. So we had a really easy time picking out the three that we we're going to review today. I actually kicked this question out to the guild and got a lot of good recommendations. And I did want to just give a quick shout out to one of our guild members. Matt Thompson made some really great recommendations when I made this post on the guild. Mm-hmm. And he actually linked a couple of geek lists that he has that covers numerous Halloween themed games because this guy's all about Halloween. He loves oh, it. Oh, cool. And he actually runs a guild on BGG called Slashing Through Cinema <laughs> <laughs> where they talk about movies, not okay. even board games. They okay. talk about like slasher movies and horror themed movies that they really enjoy. So he got real excited about this topic and he gave oh, cool. me more than I could ever even hope to cover. But just wanted to give him a shout out for giving us all that good content. It's pretty awesome. Cool. All right. Well, let's get into the games. Let's do it. There is nothing like the laughter of a baby, unless it's 1 a.m. and you're home alone. I was having a pleasant dream when what sounded like hammering woke me. After that, I could barely hear the muffled sound of dirt covering the coffin over my own screams. It was fabulous! Fearlessly, you found the three fetishes in the Fiendish Fjord. With light-footed and foxy feints, you ferry the fetishes to Prince Fiezo in France to free the fascinating fairy Fabula. But Fiezo was not fond of foreigners. What a fiasco! You land freezing and foolishly find yourself trapped in a frightful fortress with sinister corridors. Now you must flee Fiezo's Furunculus. The monster is a frightening freak, especially fond of foolish foreigners. He 
will feed on you if he is able. So you want to fool Fununculus and flee to freedom. Freaking fantastic. Fantastic. <laughs> Fabulous. Uh, great energy. So against my better judgment, I actually did work up the word fetish. You did? Oh, man. Okay. Because <laughs> it seemed weird to me in the flavor text and the yeah. way that you were using it. Okay. This was dangerous. Yeah. But according to Wikipedia... Did so you have safe search on? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> To delete this from my history. A fetish is an object believed to have supernatural powers. Oh. Or in particular, a human-made object that has power over others. Oh, my. Huh. I figured they were just going yep, for the I alliteration. Yeah, I see now. the connection now. I, I wish I couldn't see the connection anymore. <laughs> uh, anyways. All right. Fearsome Floors, published in 2003 by Rio Grande Games. At the time of this recording, its BGG ranking is 1,165. If you couldn't tell from Cameron's excellent flavor text <laughs> reading, this game is designed by Freedom and Freese. Freedom and Freese is known for a couple of things, one being his love of all things green, including dyeing his hair green and oh, all wow. of his box covers being of a green color. Yep. And most of his games using that F alliteration mm. that we just experienced with Fearsome Floors or Fresh Fish. Or Funkenschlag, which is the German name for power grid. Okay. Fabled fruit. Fabled fruit. Fuji flush. That's fun. Come on, hit me with another one. What do we got? Yeah. You're out. Uh, I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So this game was recommended by our friend and guild member, Max. Max Schmalzried. I think right. <laughs> he'll correct me when he sees me. I've never said his last name. I'm not exactly sure how to say it, but I'm pretty sure that's right. Uh, Max and Maria are members of our game group, and he recommended this one to me. I'd heard about it before from Eric Summers' Top 100 Games of All Time lists, of which it's been on for several years. Okay. Brief rule summary for Fearsome Floors. So in Fearsome Floors, the players take control of one of seven different teams, which follow pretty typical classic horror show or horror movie tropes. So you've got the neighborhood kids, which are like the Stranger Things kids. Mm -hmm. You've got the priests, like an exorcist. You've got the cool high school kids with the high school cheerleader, things like that. (laughs) And you are controlling these groups, and you're trying to guide them out of a monster's dungeon to safety. The first player to get a predetermined number of team members out of the dungeon will win the game. Before I describe the rules of the game, I'll explain what the game board looks like. So the board is made up of a grid of numerous small connected squares, and on the corner of each square is a pillar which blocks line of sight and prevents diagonal movement. The player's team members consist of two-sided wooden discs which have a different number on each side which when added together will equal seven. So for example, one disc might have a four on one side and a three on the other, whereas another disc might have a six on one side and a one on the other. All of the player discs will begin in one corner of the dungeon, while the monster starts in the opposite end of the dungeon where the exit is located. Players will take turns moving one of their discs, the specified number of spaces on the up-facing side of the disc, and then once their move is completed, they will flip that disc over, revealing how many spaces that disc can move in the next round. The players will continue taking turns, moving their discs one at a time until every disc is moved once. Once all of the player discs have moved, the monster then moves. The top token on a stack of movement tokens is flipped over, and the monster will move a number of spaces equal to the revealed number. 
Before carrying out each space of movement, the monster will look left, he'll look right, and then he will look forward. If the monster sees any player discs in any of these directions, he will begin to move in the direction of the closest disc, killing any disc that he may come in contact with. If he doesn't see any player discs, he will take another step forward in his currently forward-facing direction, and then he will again stop and look left, right, and forward, again moving towards the closest player disc, if any. The monster will continue moving in this fashion until he uses up all of his movement points. To make things a little bit more interesting, the board is also littered with large stones that the players can push around to hide behind and block the monster's line of sight. A couple of blood splatters are also present on the board, and if stepped on, the players can take a ride on these traveling several squares with a single point of movement. Play continues until one player gets three discs out of the dungeon in a two to four player game, or two discs out in a five player game. And that is generally how you play Fearsome Floors. Alright, so obviously this is our Halloween Spectacular. We're talking about Halloween-themed games, and I think for all of our games we're going to ask the same kind of central question. How well do you think this game did at capturing the Halloween theme? Did it feel scary? Did it feel spooky? Did you feel like you were being pursued? Did you feel like you were being chased? Hmm. How did this game do at capturing that Halloween theme? Yeah, I got the theme pretty strong in this game, actually. It has that very campy, schlocky, horror feel to it. From the art to even the gameplay of everyone is scrambling through this room. It definitely got that feeling of being pursued. You don't know exactly how far the monster is going to go. And that unpredictability of it really came through and made it really feel like you are trying to escape from this monster that's just sort of lumbering through the room, right? (laughs) Right. We've talked a little bit about Halloween themes and the fact that there are different types of horror and different types of scary themes. And I think this falls on the lighter end. For sure. Either campy high school horror movie or classic Frankenstein monster style type thing. And and so I, I definitely felt like it, it communicated the theme fairly well in terms of running away from a monster, escaping from the dungeon sort of thing. Yeah, I agree. I think it did too. I really enjoyed the theme in this one. Campy is a good way to describe it. I had a really good visual in my head mm. about what this game looked like as we were playing it. Mm. Jason, you mentioned the people scattering towards the exit. And as the discs spread out all over the board, you get that feeling. You can see that people are running this way and that, trying yeah. to get out. Just have to be faster than the slowest guy. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It kind of had that Goonies feel, right? Running right. away from the spooky monster. It, it did. This, Baby woof. Yep, yep. The game. <laughs> doesn't feel scary but i will say and my kids actually pointed this out Uh to me and i found it quite funny you know you can slide across these pools of blood splatter that are on the ground and if you look in these pools of blood there's limbs in there (laughs) spinal cords (laughs) there's like your brain in there like hey my eight-year-old was like that's a brain So it's got this weird mixture of goofy family fun and then a little bit of gore. I mean, yeah. like blood on the, yeah, you're like yeah. riding on people's blood splatter, right? right, right. But very cartoonish, of course. It, very cartoonish. Right. Wily Coyote like, skipping across the yeah. top of it. Yeah. In the first half of the game, if he catches you, he just throws you back in the dungeon. You can mm-hmm. keep going. But in the second half of the game, if he catches you, he murder kills you. Right. It, it's got that Halloween theme for sure. So how did you guys feel about the strategy in this game? So obviously we've alluded to the fact that it's a fairly light game, it's family friendly, it's campy. Did it feel random to you or did you feel like you had some control here? Did you Mm. feel like there was good strategic choices to be made? Yeah, I feel like I fell somewhere in in between on this one. There is definitely a degree of control here. There are some tricks 
to how you can move your pieces in such a way that you lure the monster in a particular direction. So you have some control in that respect. I think also stuff is just going to happen. It's just Mm going to fall sometimes where you thought you were safe moving a piece here. And then just based on what happens after that, you're definitely not. You're going to lose a piece, right? So I think it falls somewhere in between for me. Yeah, I felt like in this game, there is that sense of you have to prioritize which piece you're going to move first because you're going to move it potentially before somebody else. And in that sense, you can use that turn order to control the monster a little bit. Yeah, I definitely see what you guys are thinking. There's definitely strategic choices here. And I think that when you play this for the first couple of times, it can seem very random because I think in your first few plays of this game, at least for me, I found that I was just trying to figure out how to get out, Mm -hmm. right? My sole thought process was, how do I avoid the monster? I'm trying to stay out of his sight lines. I'm trying to get around him. I'm trying to avoid him. Mm -hmm. And you can play that way. But the more that I played this game, and I played this game quite a bit, I think a good bit more than y'all did, because I played it with my family a Mm -hmm. lot as well, I began to appreciate the strategy of letting yourself be seen by the monster and maybe even letting yourself be killed Mm. by the monster to ensure that he kills other opponents, maybe multiple opponents, especially if they're getting close to leaving the dungeon. Mm -hmm. There was a real light switch that flipped on for me when I started to see the game not as an avoidance game, but as a, how can I manipulate this monster to do what I want it to do to hinder and stop my opponents from being successful? Right. And I felt like this game really did a good job of that, and I began to appreciate it more and more as I played it. Right, because there's not really anything that you can do adversarially There's no direct take that. The only thing that you can do is move a guy in a way that's going to turn the monster and make it get you before it gets me. Or maybe, like you said, I don't care about that guy. You know, he's slow or something. I'm just going to let him get taken so that this other guy can advance. Yeah, and I think that's something that people don't account for the first time they play Mm -hmm. this game. I remember the second time I played this with Knox, my 10-year-old. He had played a great game, mm-hmm. and I hated doing this to him. <laughs> no, you didn't. <laughs> you, I did a little lie. bit. I did a little bit because he played so well. Uh-huh. But it didn't stop me from crushing his hopes and dreams. <laughs> because he had two people that were going to walk out on the next turn, and he was celebrating already because he was behind the monster. Uh-huh. Which, if you're behind the monster, he can't see you. And he didn't see any way that he could be caught. Uh-huh. And I was just kind of grinning because I saw a way that I could move my guy, allowing him to be killed. Right. Max's so-called sacrificial lamb yeah. strategy, where it would divert the monster in such a way to where it would force him to see Nox's guys and wipe him out. Mm-hmm. Right. There's just all kinds of shenanigans that can happen in this game that way. But again, I would point out that that's not random. I made that happen. Right. Right. Like, I, th- I think there's more control here than I initially thought in my right. first place. So one other thing that I appreciated about this game is along the edge of the game board on all sides are these secret corridors. And you would think, okay, what happens when the monster just runs into a wall, right? He's programmed to do that. Well, he'll go through the secret corridor, which is marked by a letter, and he'll come out the opposite corresponding letter secret corridor on some other portion of the map, which could have him coming out in all sorts of places and maybe... Right, right on top exit. of your opponent's yeah. tokens. Which conveniently only the monster can use. <laughs> yes, yes. Which, they're just there to kill Jason's tokens. Yeah, that can be <laughs> super satisfying. What a brilliant design choice by Freedom and Freeze here. Because when the monster is on the opposite side of the map, especially away from the exit, 
it can feel bleak. Right. Because you're like, well, how am I going to stop these people from getting out now? He's all the way on the other side of the map. But if you can guide him mm-hmm. through one of these secret passages, you can have him pop out right at the exit. Yeah. And slaughter everybody who thought they were getting ready to get out, mm-hmm. right? By the skillful movement of your discs. I enjoyed that part of it. Well, yeah. do we have any cons for this game? I would say if I have a con for this game, it would be the game length. I think mm-hmm. that for as simple as the rules are and the movement, there are a million permutations of how you can move your discs around. Yep. What order do I move them in? Where do I move them? And I think given the concerns with the level of control that I mentioned earlier, I think this game felt a little long for what it was mm-hmm. to me. People can really lock up on turns. Oh, yeah. And it feels like this game, because players' pawns are getting eliminated throughout the game and, and whatnot, it just feels like it should be a 30-minute, 40-minute yeah. max type game. And it was it, taking and longer it can than be. that. Yeah, it could be. Yeah. But I think if you're really analyzing the board and really trying mm-hmm. to be strategic about it, because the strategy is there, but you have to think through it. You're not going to be able to play this game super quickly unless you're just a genius. <laughs> <laughs> and still be strategic about it. So there's a balance there somewhere. And I, it felt a little long to me. Sorry, when you said genius, I just immediately thought of that one gif of the calculations like flowing <laughs> right. in front of someone's face, like highlighting all the different permutations on the board. Playing fearsome floors. <laughs> yeah, I agree with you on the length. As I mentioned, I think this has the potential to be a fast, fun, quick family game. But if you're playing with competitive people like us, <laughs> this game can go long because yeah. there are can be a lot to think about here. And I was just as guilty as anybody about taking a long turn in this game. And I shouldn't have been, but it's hard not to because you can start to see all the ways it can go bad for you and you're trying to account for every bad scenario and that can lock you up in this game for sure. The only other thing for me that really stuck out as a con I think is worth mentioning is I think this game is best at three to four players. Mm. You can play this game all the way up to seven, I believe. But any games that are five plus players, I didn't enjoy as much And the reason for that is in five player or more games, you only need to get two of your discs out, Mm. two of your four, which to me felt a little bit too easy at times. It took a little bit of the tension away, whereas in a two or four player game where you have to get three out, that's a little bit bigger of an ask. And I feel like it gives everybody a feeling like they're more in it. Mm -hmm. Because I did have games of this where in five players... People were able to get two discs towards the exit pretty quick Mm -hmm. with no way of being able to stop them. And it felt a little deflating. Yeah, I think that's a natural side effect of that race type of game where if somebody gets out to an early lead and there's not enough control built into the game to be able to slow them down, that deflating feeling can come. I like the game where everybody tries their strategic best and whoever strategized the best comes out on top, right? And in this game, it can feel like, well, somebody just kind of got out to the early lead. They ended up in the right spot at the right time. And so now there's not really a great way to slow them down. Right. Yeah, I can definitely see that. Yep. Cool. Well, should we move on to final thoughts then? Jason, we can get us started. Yeah, for me, this game, like I mentioned, definitely evoked the Halloween theme. I think it definitely fits a play around the Halloween holidays. Outside of that, I'm not sure if I would gravitate towards wanting to play this game regularly. I think for some of the reasons that I mentioned before, with just the degree of control that I felt like I had. For that reason, I landed on a three for this game. I can see the strategy to it. I can see why people enjoy this game. But I think for me, it kind of fell flat a little bit. But I say that with the caveat that I think that playing it more, like you said, Chris, 
mm-hmm. that that strategy develops more as you play it more often. I think if I played it more, I could see myself starting to like it more perhaps. But I think based on my plays up to this point and my just general feeling towards the game, having played it uh, a few times, I think I would settle on a three. Okay. We talked in terms of cons about the length of the game, the potential for a lot of permutations and analysis paralysis, Mm -hmm, I guess. mm -hmm. Other than that, I really didn't have any specific cons. And usually when that happens, we consider on this show like that that's a good thing. I think, though, it can also be a bad thing if we don't feel like the highs are really high. I guess there's not anything that we particularly love about a game. I thought this game was fine. I don't really have anything specifically negative that I would criticize about it. But I do feel like this falls into that category of it didn't really grip me. It was lacking the special sauce or whatever. I felt a little bit like each time it was my turn to move a guy, like because it's a race game that I'm very much incentivized to just rush my guy as far in the direction of the exit as possible. Except for maybe right around the end of the game when you might have to do a feint to dodge the monster or something like that. So yeah, I just don't have a lot of love for it right now. Maybe that could change if I played it more. I don't know. I won one of my plays of it, so (laughs) that's always fun. Yeah, it always helps. If Jason had won this, he'd give it a four. Right. But (laughs) that said, like, I'm not necessarily itching to play it again. With that in mind, I'm just going to go with a three. Okay. Yeah, it's really interesting to hear y'all's thoughts on it. Because when I played this game for the first few times, I was meh on Mm. it as well. I thought I was going to give it a three. Okay. I think I've played this game quite a bit more than you guys have. Mostly because I've played it with my family quite a Mm. bit. Because it's a pretty easy game. It's pretty easy to understand. And I found that the more I played this game, the more it really began to open up for me. And the more I appreciated the strategy that is really present in this game. Mm. I think there's a good bit of strategy that's going on here. Okay. The game really flipped for me when I began to see it less as an avoidance game and more as an offensive game. Okay. I'm not trying to avoid the monster anymore. Now I'm trying to figure out how am I going to manipulate mm. the monster to do what I want it to do to harm my opponents okay. and for me to get around him. And I started enjoying it a lot more once I started seeing those opportunities. I think that just comes with repeated play. To me, this game reminds me a lot of a game that I also like, Robo Rally. Mm. I think this game, Fearsome Floors, does have some randomness in it that is difficult to account for like Robo Rally does, but I do feel like Robo Rally, you know, a lot of people describe Robo Rally as being very chaotic. I don't see it that way. I think there's a lot of control in Robo Rally. I can control my program. You have to think fast, and a lot of people yeah. don't like that, and maybe that's where they see it as chaotic, but we don't know what other people are going to do. Sure, but even still, you can account for some people's movement and where you think they're going to mm-hmm. go, kind of like in this game, <laughs> right? Right. So, again, I would say if you like Robo Rally, You'd probably like this game. This game's not programming per se, but I got similar feels. Mm -hmm. All that to say, ultimately, I landed on a four for this game. I think it's good. I think there's more strategy than randomness. I feel like it's thematic. I enjoyed the control of using the monster offensively. Mm. It's fun. I enjoyed it. It's a good game. I give it a four. All right. Cool. Very good. Well, if somebody wants to give Fearsome Floors a shot, where can they find it? Yeah, so this game is readily available at several online retailers, actually, including Noble Knight, our friends at Noble Knight. So if you want to pick it up there, you can get 10% off of your order. If you use our code GEMS21 on the coupon code field, we would appreciate it. Also available on BGG Marketplace as well, 31 copies. So get this one, no problem. Very cool. 
Well, those are our thoughts on Fearsome Floors. <laughs> Growing up with cats and dogs, I got used to the sounds of scratching at my door while I slept. Now that I live alone, it is much more unsettling. The last thing I saw was my alarm clock flashing 12.07 before she pushed her long, rotting nails through my chest, her other hand muffling my screams. I sat bolt upright, relieved it was only a dream, but as I saw my alarm clock read 12.06, I heard my closet door creep open. The story of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, well known worldwide and screened multiple times, is the struggle between the good and evil selves of one person. Played in teams of two, the goal is to take Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde to victory over the other self. But control over one's own cards is limited. The Dr. Jekyll players will also have to play Mr. Hyde cards, and vice versa. In the card game, just as in the novel, the transformation occurs at the most inopportune moment. Subtle communication with one's partner and sensitive tactics are needed here. This is Audible. (laughs) (laughs) Good job, Cameron. That was great. All right. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Yes. Published in 1997 Mm -hmm. by Bambusch Spielverlag. Pretty sure I'm not pronouncing that correctly, but (laughs) that's what I got. Designed by Wolfgang Werner. Currently ranked on BGG 4064. So before we get into the rules for this game, I want to give a very special thanks to one particular BGG user, Trollerman, or John Owen, who gave us a copy of this game. Yeah. Oh, wow. He this, gave it to you. Well, I paid shipping, but gotcha. we got the game wow. for him from for free. So cool. And also special thanks to Ghidorah, who we've mentioned plenty of times on the show up to this point, who put me in contact with this guy because he knew that he had a copy of it and was willing to sell it. This game... Not to give away the where can we find this game at the end. <laughs> this game is nearly impossible oh, yeah. to find. Wow. There are zero copies on BGG. No copies at Noble Knight. There are no copies anywhere. anywhere that I can find. But it is such a unique card game that I just really wanted to give it a try. I think I mentioned this in our like second or third episode, maybe. That it was one that I had stumbled across in our mining efforts that just sounded really fascinating. Mm-hmm. But I was like, I'm never going to find a copy of it. And lo and behold, we found a copy of it, thanks to some of our guild members. So, yeah, thank you. Yeah. So, really excited to give this one a shot on the show. Rules for Jekyll and Hyde. This is a partnered trick-taking game. Two of the players in this game are going to be the Jekyll team, and two players are the Hyde team. And these teammates will sit opposite across the table. I think to understand this game, you have to understand the breakdown of the deck. So this is a deck of 28 cards. 14 of the cards belong to the Jekyll side. 14 of the cards belong to the Hyde side. And the ranks and values of these cards are the same between the two sets of 14. Additionally, the backs of these cards are different. So for any given hand, all of the cards are shuffled together and dealt out equally seven cards to each player. So each player is going to have a mix of Jekyll and Hyde cards, and you will be able to tell how many Jekyll and Hyde cards each player has by the backs of these cards, but you obviously will not know what those cards are specifically. 
Each card has a rank for trick-taking purposes and a value for point scoring purposes. So I'm just gonna go through the high level breakdown of the cards because there aren't that many of them. On each side of the deck, there is one transformation card. The transformation card has the highest rank of any card in the game, but it has a value of zero for scoring purposes. It also has the special effect of placing the current trick on hold. So any trick where a transformation card is played, that trick is basically canceled, but the cards stay on the table and the next trick determines the winner of both that trick and the previous trick. After the transformation card, there are five character cards, and these cards have art on them for the different characters in the story, Dr. Layton and Mr. Utterson and Mr. Enfield, who are important characters in the book. These cards are the trump cards, so they have sequential ranks, A, B, C, D, and E. There are five cards on each side of the deck but they all have the same value of one point. After the character cards, there are five scene cards on each side of the deck. Each of these cards has the same rank. They all have a rank of F, but they have sequential values, the highest being seven, working all the way down to a value of three. Finally, each side of the deck has three deed cards. These represent, for the Jekyll side, remorse or charity, or for the Hyde side, it's rage and murder. These cards have the lowest rank of all the cards in the deck. They also have a value of zero, but their printed values on the front are 3x, 2x, and 1x, mm -hmm. which is very important for scoring, and I'll come back to that in a second very important. of how that works. So another important thing to explain about this game is how a trick is played out, because it's very unique. Once each player has received their seven cards, one player will lead a trick, and every other player will have the opportunity to play a card to that trick. There is no following suit in this game. You just play a card. The only restriction is that you have to play a card for your team. So if you're a Jekyll player, you must play a Jekyll card. If you're a Hyde player, you must play a Hyde card. Now you're probably wondering, well, if I have a mix of those cards, I'm not going to be able to play a Hyde card every time it's my turn if I'm the Hyde player, if half of my hand is Jekyll cards. Right. So the way it works is at any point during the trick, it doesn't have to be because you have run out of cards for your side. You can choose to do this at any point. You can choose to elect any other player at the table to play a card on your behalf. <laughs> so cool. if it comes to me and I'm the hide player and either I don't have any more hide cards in my hand or I just decide I would like to have someone else play one on my behalf, I can decide, Cameron, play a hide card for me. And he will choose a hide card from his hand if he has more than one, he gets to decide which card that is, and he'll play it in front of me. So in this way, a single player can play multiple cards into the same trick, and it's not always going to be all players having the same number of cards in their hand at all times. In fact, I could run out of cards in my hand and just be electing other people to play cards on my <laughs> behalf for the, rest of the, yep. for the rest of the hand. So really the only other thing to talk about is how does a hand score? So at the end of the hand, each side will collect all of the cards that they manage to catch in the tricks for that hand. And any card with a point value will get added together to be that side's point score for the hand. And in this case, it does not matter whether those cards are Jekyll cards or Hyde cards. All points count as points. However, I mentioned these deed cards with the 3x, the 2x, and the 1x. And these are very important. Each team is going to take a look at which deed cards they have collected for their own side. So deed cards collected that belong to the opposing side are meaningless. They basically just deny the other yep. team from having them. 
denial. However, the cards that belong to your side get added together. These multipliers are additive, so if we manage to catch the 3x and the 1x, our total multiplier would be 4x, and this is a multiplier of your point score. It's important to note that if you manage to collect none of your own cards, your multiplier is 0x, Goose egg. and you get no points, <laughs> regardless of what other cards you manage to catch. So that's basically the whole game. A full game of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde plays to a 1,000, just like Teach You, and yeah, that's it. So we've been talking about Halloween theme throughout the episode. Card games, especially trick-taking games, are not generally considered to be overly thematic. Nope. I'm curious, did this game evoke the theme of Jekyll and Hyde, the story, in your opinion, and if so, how? I'll go first on this one. So I think there's obviously two ways to answer this question. I think it's clear enough for anyone familiar with the Jekyll and Hyde story that I think this falls into that category of spooky, scary stories of like things of the mind, right? right. Like going crazy type stuff. So I think <laughs> this that's, game can make it crazy. At oh times. yeah, for sure. <laughs> because I think the way that this game approaches the theme in terms of following the Jekyll and Hyde story is built into the fact that you have to play cards from other people's hands, yep. specifically your opponent's hands. Yep. And so you really get this feel as you're playing this game of like, okay, I can do good things for my team if I'm Jekyll by playing my <laughs> own Jekyll cards or by calling on my partner to play Jekyll cards because you're going to play a good card. But when you have to play the cards that are in your opponent's hands, it's this cringy thing because you're like, oh, if I call on Chris, he's on the Hyde team, he's going to play the worst card possible <laughs> to make sure that they win that trick, not us. And so it's that theme of Jekyll wanting to do good things and Hyde sort of yeah. being the anti-Jekyll, right? Of doing the worst thing possible. Yeah. Dude, that was really well said. That's cool. Yeah, I agree with everything you said. And I actually thought of it in a slightly different way. But everything you said, I totally agree with. I'm excited to hear what Jason has to say about this too. But this game is fascinating. Mm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it really is. This game is fascinating. It's unlike any other trick-taking game yeah. I've ever played. Wholly unique, mm -hmm. right? And it's weird to talk about a card game being thematic. Mm -hmm. But this one, it killed it. Mm-hmm. My answer to this question is you really have to be of two minds mm. when you play this game. Absolutely. Like yeah. a Jekyll and Hyde type of thing, right? You'll have hands of this where you'll have a lot of, let's say I'm playing Jekyll. I'm Jekyll team mm -hmm. and I have a lot of Jekyll cards. When that happens, it feels very much like a standard trick taker. Mm -hmm. It will feel familiar to you, right? And you'll play it as such. But you'll also have times where you're going to be holding a lot of your opponent's cards. <laughs> and you totally have to change the way that you're thinking mm -hmm. about the game. It's interesting. We played this a few times with different people. And everybody had different thoughts on it. And they were all very interesting. And a lot of people were saying, oh, it sucks that I'm holding hide cards and I'm Jekyll. And I can understand why they were saying that. But I think you can't think of it as a disadvantage. Mm -hmm. You just have to change the way you're thinking. Mm -hmm. And it's so hard when you're playing trick takers and you've played them for years. And you're used to playing them a certain way. And this game's like, no. <laughs> you're not going to play this game right. like every other trick taker you ever played. I'm going to change it on you, mm -hmm. right? Cool. I really like that. I think I would echo what both of you guys said. I thought about it both ways at times. What stood out to me, too, was having to give up control, mm -hmm. right? You're giving up control of your hand anytime you choose an opponent to play a card for you. Yeah. And figuring out, how do I give up that control in the right way at the right time? I, I have not read the book, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, 
but there's actually two rule books in the box and the second rule book is basically just an abridged version of the story and it uses the art from all the cards and explains different quotes from the book and relates it to it so I, I read through that and it's fascinating the story I've always kind of made the assumption that this was like a laboratory accident that just sort of happened and now it's out of control and Hyde and mm-hmm, Jekyll are mm-hmm, like wrestling mm-hmm. with each other the original book the process was completely intentional Jekyll created this potion and had very strong control over his ability to use it. He would flip-flop back and forth between Jekyll and Hyde at will and did it for the purpose of allowing himself to separate his good nature and his evil nature so that he Mm -hmm. could be good when he wanted to be and leave the bad part behind. But the bad part was so appealing to him that he started to indulge in it and (sighs) become bad for a little while to like try it out and then it eventually controls him and becomes uncontrollable and he's not able to control when these transformations happen back and forth so that degree of control i felt all throughout this game mm-hmm. right and having to decide how much control i want to give to my opponents at what point throughout the hand right mm-hmm. because choosing an opponent to play a card early in the hand might be beneficial but it also is really dangerous if they have a lot of different cards in mind mm-hmm. that they have a lot of flexibility and then you have those transformation cards in there which mm-hmm. are just like these complete wild cards that nullify a hand temporarily but also make the next hand doubly valuable And they happen at the most inopportune times. And so that control of, well, you never know when this transformation is going to happen now that it's out of control and it's going haywire. I thought that thematic tie-in was really cool. Yeah, I think it's really interesting that you keep using the word control. And I want to talk about this for a Mm. minute because when you first play this game, you will feel very much out of control. Again, Mm. because this trick-taking concept is foreign. How can I make anything happen in this game that I want to happen? Because my opponents are playing cards for me, and they're playing cards I don't want, right? But one of the things that I found the most interesting about this game is a brilliant design. The deck is 28 cards. That is a small deck of cards, Mm -hmm. okay? So it is very possible to track cards in this game. And as a matter of fact, if you want to play the game well... You must. Kind of, yeah. Yeah. Right? And once you begin to figure out how to track cards, specifically the trumps, yeah. the game turns into a highly strategic experience. Yep. Because again, as I mentioned, it can seem disadvantageous for your opponents to be holding your cards. However, if you're tracking whether your trumps are being played, once the hands get down low, you're like, well, I know they're holding those trumps. They're going to have to come out eventually. Right. Right. And so if you can account for that and know that they're holding them and know that they're going to have to play them eventually and you force them out of their hand, you can use that to your advantage. Yeah, That was mind-blowing once I made that connection because I felt very lost when we first started playing this game. I think definitely the challenge for this is to try to figure out, okay, when do I call on an opponent to play that? Yeah, Especially if your opponent has a lot of your cards because it's obviously very risky depending on whether or not you're currently winning the trick when it's your turn to make the decision on who's going to play, right? Because there's always this risk of... If I call my opponent, they're going to dump a really good card into mm-hmm. a, a trick that they're already winning or something like that. That's not going to give it, or they're going to dump a really good card on a hand that's worth four, right? Sure. And not worth a lot of points. It's like, oh, how do I whittle what they're holding down to where it's just the good cards and then yeah. try to force them to play it where they can't help handing a trick over to you? Yeah, and there are definitely times when you shouldn't call on your opponents to play for you. And this was another really interesting, I think, I found about this game is when we started to figure out 
calling on your partner mm-hmm. is a good play. And actually, Bill maybe. and I, maybe, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> so Bill and I actually partnered together. I know, heaven forbid, we partnered together. We actually right. played nice together, yeah. Yeah. and we did good. But, you know, it was funny. We always just kept calling on our opponents, and then we started to come to the realization we could help each other out mm-hmm. by calling on each other sometimes. Yeah, Using your partner can be powerful. But one interesting thing about this is you have to be careful about calling on your partner too much. Because mm-hmm. when you do that, you're ridding your hands of cards, right? So as Jason yep. mentioned in the rules, you can get to a point where you can have no cards left in your hand, and maybe even your partner has no cards left, and then guess who's playing out the rest of the tricks <laughs> for you? Your opponents. Right. And right. they will play it out in the most advantageous way possible for themselves. Right. Right. Which I found, again, very interesting. Sure. Yeah, it leaves a lot of opportunities, and I don't claim to be an expert in this by any means at this point, but I think there's a lot of opportunity here for communicating with your partner Mm -hmm. through your plays and through who you call on when, right? It's almost like the swapping of cards and teach you a little bit, you know, based on the way what I'm playing into what type of trick and who I'm calling on to play cards for me based on how many cards I'm holding. I think there's a lot of opportunity there to communicate information to your partner to help them understand what you're holding or, you know, kind of the direction they need to trick. I'm holding F cards, not I'm holding trumps. Right, right. One other thing I really loved was the balance of the ranks and the values right? Mm -hmm. All the trump cards have these really high ranks and they're sequential and they can beat each other, but they all have piddly values. Piddly points, yeah. And then all the cards that actually have all the real points are really low ranked and they're all ranked the same. Can't win a thing. And then the the cards that actually really matter, which is the ones that give you the multipliers, are worthless. They're completely Mm, worthless. I found that fascinating, reading through the rules and then trying to digest how to play out a hand. It gave a very strong feeling to me, actually, of Hungarian Tarok, Mm -hmm. which is a game... (laughs) <laughs> that, that only we like. Yeah, that apparently only we like. <laughs> nobody listens to that episode. Apparently, <laughs> that's right. Uh, North Carolina and Hungary. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> right, but it had a, a very similar feeling, like with the Tarox all being trumps and uh-huh. like being most of the deck being Tarox, and then you have these piddly cards that don't have as much use. Yep. So I found that really fascinating, for sure. Well, was there anything about this game that you guys didn't like? So some design elements of the deck in this game struggle. The back of the cards are so important in this game to be able to look at other people's hands and know how many of each card they have. But they use type of card, right? They use this inverted black and white schemes to designate the Jekyll and the Hyde. But honestly, there's not enough contrast. So sometimes you kind of have to like squint or be like, "How many Jekyll and how many Hyde do you have? Let me see your cards. Hold them up to the light." I think that's not great for a functional component like that. And I think similarly, they could have done a better job. The art itself on the cards, I think, is pretty nice especially in terms of communicating the thematic elements of the story and stuff like that i just feel like they could have balanced the functionality a little bit better because in the end you're here to play a trick-taking game Mm -hmm. and being able to identify cards on site and track them throughout the game i think probably should take precedence over the narrative element even though i think they did a good job with that yeah the only thing i think i would mention is game length playing to a thousand in this (laughs) game took a while take a while yeah Um, we were about four hours (laughs) it felt like and i mean we were playing slow yeah we we sucked we're exploring the game and we're not very good at it at this point but compared to a game like teach you where you're also playing to a thousand and it can be done in 45 minutes to an hour depending on what happens in the game of course it felt like this one was taking a while now I say that I don't think you would have to play this game to a thousand in order to play it or enjoy it right yeah I mean we went a couple nights 
playing the other games for this episode where we're like, hey, let's just play a couple hands of this yeah. afterwards, right? And it's still great. It's still interesting sure. to just play through a few hands. Uh, I think that's a minor quibble too. But if you're playing according to the rules and you're playing all the way to a thousand, be prepared for it to, you know, be a while. At least when you're learning the game. I think as we got more experienced with it, our play sped up because it's so opaque this game is opaque man yeah. the first couple times you play it, you're gonna be like what is going on right you'll yep. be slow i think you'll speed up but having said that i do agree with you it's a slower card game for sure well ready for final thoughts yep. chris kick us off all right so as i've mentioned before on many episodes of this podcast i love uniqueness and originality in games it's just what i'm looking for if I can walk away from a game saying, man, I've never experienced anything like that before, it's already got high marks in my book. Mm. Now, the game has to be good. Luckily, this game is good. It's real good. <laughs> Again, the first few times you play this, I could see how you could be like, this game is random. <laughs> but it's not random. It's really not. You just have to give the game a chance. Mm. And I feel like if you do that, the strategy will just begin to open up for you and you'll be amazed by it. I was. Not to mention the fact that it's just super thematic, like we mentioned. Cool gameplay, very addictive. I loved this game. I'm giving this game a five. I thought it was excellent. Really enjoyed it. Looking forward to playing it again. Nice. Yeah, this was a surprisingly clever and interesting trick-taking game to me. When I read the rules initially, I was like, this sounds fascinating, but it could be a complete flop because <laughs> there's just so much potential for a lack of control here. But after playing it, I would highly recommend this to anyone who is interested in trick-taking games. It is such a unique twist on the genre of trick-taking. And it's not just the uniqueness that makes it good. Like you said, Chris, it's also a good game. It's definitely not a first-time trick-taker. No way. For anyone. <laughs> right? If you're not an experienced trick-taking card game player, I would not recommend this as a first or, game. Or apparently a podcast contributor. <laughs> <laughs> You were doing good, though. I mean, I, I'm yeah. not an experienced person. I think I played my first trick taker on this show. You did. Yeah. Yeah, it's very twisty. Yeah. But I really enjoyed this one. I'm sad that it is impossible to oh. find as it is. I would love to see a reprint of this someday. You know, clean up the art a little bit, and this could be really awesome. I also gave this game a five. Mm-hmm. Sweet. I also enjoyed this game. I think I'd rather play Jekyll and Hyde maybe as more like a filler where you just kind of play a fixed set of hands rather than to a thousand or pick a lower point number or something like that because it did run a bit long but i think it performs super well and it does offer really tricky strategy for a trick-taking game that i really enjoyed trying to puzzle out i still haven't cracked it i think i would like to keep at it and improve my game it definitely needs a graphical tune-up, but in the end, I really don't think that poses a major problem for me. I can't wait to play it again. I'm thrilled to give Jekyll and Hyde a five as well. Nice. All right. So, Jason, for those that hear this review and agree with us that they want to try Jekyll and Hyde, <laughs> is it even possible to find? Nope. <laughs> oh, <no>. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, you know, we've mentioned it already in this review. There may be a copy of this game out there somewhere. Obviously, we found a copy of it mm -hmm. thanks to our awesome guild members. But you're going to have a real hard time finding a copy of this. It's rough. I hope that somebody out there maybe hears this and decides to pick it up and give it another publishing. Yeah. That would be awesome. But, yeah, highly recommend it. Those are our thoughts on Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. All right. Sleep did not come to me easily that night in the cabin in the woods. 
for the portraits on the wall only portrayed the deformed, the decrepit, and the damned. Sleep has never come easily to me ever again, for when I woke, I found no portraits, only windows. After so many years living alone in this large house, I came to a startling revelation. In this time I had closed far more doors than I had opened. It's Halloween. Time to haunt those poor, unfortunate humans who think the holiday is all fun and games. Just wait until you unleash your ghosts upon this small town. Use your wits and knowledge to summon ghosts. Move them around town. Scare people. And even fight other ghosts. Because only one of you can claim the title of the scariest demon lord of all. You're gonna have a sore throat after that one. <laughs> Good stuff. <laughs> all right. Alright. Halloween. That's appropriate, yeah, right? Yeah. This is kind of a no-brainer, right? Oh yeah. Published in 2017, this is not an old game, by Quinted Games. At the time of this recording, its BGG ranking is 5,875. The designer of this game is Angelo DeMaio. Never heard of this guy, and it's because this is his only published design. Oh, wow. This is it. Hmm. This game was reviewed on the Dice Tower a few years back. And got a pretty favorable review from Tom Vassell, but he had mentioned at the time that he felt like it would fall into obscurity, and he was right about that. This game is very forgotten, even though it was only four years ago this game Mm -hmm. came out. But I did hear about it from him. When we were taking recommendations for the Halloween game episode, Daryl Boone recommended this one as one that might be good for the episode, even though he has not played it. Mm. And I had it, so I was like, makes sense. It's called Halloween. Yeah. Let's play it. Sure. See if it's good, right? All right. Brief rule summary on Halloween. So in Halloween, players are attempting to gain the most haunt points, which are victory points, by either performing haunt actions at the six different locations on the game board or by occupying different action cards, which can award certain in-game and end-game scoring benefits. The way the players do this is by action selection. So each player has an individual player board that is divided up into three identical sections with each section giving the player a choice of up to six different actions. Okay, so three sections, six actions each section. So on a player's turn, they will perform three actions, one in each of his or her three sections. The trick is once a player chooses a certain action within a section of his player board, he covers it with a wooden disc and he cannot choose that action again in that particular section until he performs a rest action on that section. Resting allows a player to retrieve all of his discs, which are limited to 12 in number, from one section of his player board, thereby freeing up those used actions to be used again. One other important point to note is that each player's board also has a ghost track above it, running from the weakest level 1 blue ghosts on the left, all the way up to the strongest level 5 red ghosts on the right. Because everybody knows red ghosts are stronger than blue ghosts. (laughs) Obviously. This makes total sense. Blue ghosts are like Casper. (laughs) 
<laughs> the player, Not like the scary guy with the scythe. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. You got the Grim Reaper on the right. You got Casper on the left. All right. The player will slide a clear stone marker which tracks what level of ghost is available in that particular section of their player board, which indicates what type of ghost can be used to carry out those actions. And those ghost levels will be constantly changing over the course of the game by way of player actions, which I'll discuss in a minute. Just describing this game sounds ridiculous. <laughs> you know, some of the ghosts have to go to college. Oh, man. And then they okay. can become the most more organized scary. ghosts. <laughs> These ghosts are really... Very hierarchical ghost society. (laughs) There's a lot of organization to this ghost society. (laughs) All right. Okay, here we go. The different actions include summoning, which lets a player create a new ghost of one color if two ghosts of that same color are present in the same location, obviously. Scaring for scare points, which will... I love scare points. Yeah. Which will award you differing numbers of points depending on which level of ghost you use to perform the action. Scare points are used as a part of the upgrade action. To upgrade one level of ghost to the next highest level of ghost on the board. And more importantly, this action also lets you improve one of your ghost gauges. (laughs) Up to the level of... Now you're just tickled. Oh, man. (laughs) Up to the level of ghost that you just upgraded to. Fourth action allows you to move into an orthogonally adjacent area. Fifth action is fighting. So you can make two different colored ghosts fight against one another by rolling a different sided die based on the level or strength of the ghost. If you're successful, you will gain a ghost token of the defeated ghost color. And finally, you can haunt on your turn. Haunting is one of the main ways you score points in the game. You will choose a color of ghost and then score a corresponding number of points equal to the level of that ghost... So, for example, a level 1 Casper Ghost will score 2 points in each area, while a level 5 Red Ghost can score 10 ghosts in that location. However... 10 points? 10 ghosts? 10 10 ghosts, yeah. However, it is important to note that you can only haunt each location once, and once someone has haunted a location with a certain color of ghost, that location can't be haunted by that color again. Finally, I need to briefly mention the action cards as they have a huge impact on gameplay. At the beginning of the game, eight cards from a 52-card deck will be drawn at random and assigned face-up on top of the board. During the game, players can spend three ghost tokens to occupy an action card to immediately score three victory points and gain a card's benefits. Some of these benefits allow you to break certain rules of the game. So, for example, you can move two ghosts instead of one when you take the move action while others give you the potential to score additional points during the game and at the end of the game. For example, every time you summon during the game, you gain a victory point. The game will end once one player has haunted all six different locations or a player has occupied five different action cards. And that is generally how you play Halloween. <laughs> are we going to talk about how the theme relates to this game? Please, <laughs> yes, we Please are. tell me we're going to talk Chris, about how the theme relates to this Did we make too many jokes game. during uh, the rules okay. explanation? <laughs> so this should be pretty obvious, but we'll ask it. How well did this game do at capturing the Halloween theme? Ghosts and stuff. <laughs> ghosts and things. <laughs> this is the most organized ghosts I've ever heard of. <laughs> Go ahead, Jason. I think that says it all. I, I don't know. Applying Euro game mechanics to evil ghosts trying to haunt a gas station or whatever the other locations are on the board. Yeah. There's something hilarious about that, too. Yeah. There's, like, rip tokens, little tombstones, yeah. you know, that you can pick up that help you rest. 
in peace. <laughs> All right. Rest well, your okay. game pieces. That's not bad. It's yeah. pretty good. Yeah. A little on the nose. A little on the nose. But, yeah, you know, I mean, it hits all the points. Yeah. I didn't feel scared playing this game quite like I did in Fearsome Floors. Sure. Right? Where you really get that sense. Or even Jekyll and Hyde where it's like, you know, this makes me feel a little bit crazy. I do feel like this one hits all the Halloween themes, but I don't think that it yep. goes deeper than the tokens that you're moving around a ghost. So the graphics, I think, they're nice looking graphics. But in terms of, do you feel like you're playing with a haunting scary theme, like in some other more popular games, even like Betrayal mm-hmm. type things, you don't feel that type of tension thematically I think when you play Halloween. Yeah, I agree with you, Cameron. I think the game looks pretty good. Yeah. I think it looks Halloween-y. Mm-hmm. The ghosts, if I haven't mentioned, that are on the board are plastic miniatures and they look cool. The graphic design, outside of having a lot of iconography, is pretty good. Mm-hmm. The board is kind of dark, but not illegible. You yeah. know, it looks kind of spooky. But holy cow. This is a Euroy, Euroy, Euro game. <laughs> okay, <laughs> You're moving gauges, you're covering actions, you're pushing tracks. I mean, this is a dry Euro game. Trading a- scare points for haunt points. <laughs> yeah, it's just ridiculous. Hey, don't bash on the scare points, okay? <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it's so pasted on. I mean, it really is. I give it made for effort, I guess. He's trying to make it interesting, but man, this is a Euro game through mm-hmm. and through. That's mm-hmm. just very clear. If that wasn't clear from my rules explanation. <laughs> How did y'all feel about the gameplay? Obviously, as I mentioned, this is a pretty standard Euro game, yeah. right? How did you feel about the gameplay here? Yeah, I found the action track mechanism to be pretty unique in this game. The ghost slider of I have to balance my actions between these three different sections where each section has the ability to influence different levels of ghosts. And that was mind-boggling to me early on playing this game. Mm -hmm. I slowly got the hang of it the more we played it. But there's a lot to consider and a lot to think about as you're trying to figure out, okay, how do I place my discs out on these actions to make sure I can do what I need to do at the right time? Because timing is very important in this game. Mm-hmm. That was a cool puzzle to me. Of yeah. Trying to figure out, okay, well, I have a limited number of discs. I want to try to be as efficient as possible. It started to feel a lot like Scythe to me, in a way. It really becomes an efficiency game of, can I get the most done with the action tokens that I have right now and not waste time resting when I'm not recovering the most tokens possible and things like that. I enjoyed that puzzly action selection part of the game. Yeah, I did too. It definitely had that, I need to get this to turn this into this, to make this ghost this level so that I can do this action at this level to get this, to turn this into this, to make points. Very Euro-y, right? It will feel very familiar in a lot of ways. And maybe that's a minor con. I'm not getting into my cons yet, but I will say... I don't know if this game strikes any new ground necessarily. It feels familiar. Mm. But one thing that I did really like that I feel like we have to talk about are these action cards. Mm-hmm. Yep. As I mentioned, as I was going through the rules, there are 52 of these action cards. Okay, mm-hmm. And eight of them will be drawn at random each game. And they do all different kinds mm-hmm. of things. Okay, Whether they give you point scoring opportunities or give you rule breaking abilities... To me, this is where the game really shines is because this is what allows you to find your strategy in the game to be different from your opponents 
and allows you to find a path to victory in this game. How'd you guys feel about the action cards? Yeah, that was the thing that I feel like I latched onto pretty yeah, quickly when I too. started playing this game. Is I was like, all right, this game is about efficiency and it's about finding those synergies right to create an engine because you're going to be taking the same actions throughout the game and all of the action cards identify with a specific action right when you take this action you get this benefit and so you're trying to figure out okay which actions do i want to be incentivized to continue to take maybe more frequently than others because that's what i'm going to be good at right right yeah i think these cards make this game I think without them, the game would become pretty stale pretty fast. For sure. Because the progression of the actions that you do Mm -hmm. to build your engine is pretty tight. Mm -hmm. There's not a whole lot of room for variation. You upgrade your ghost so that you can upgrade a slider so that you can do the next thing with the next level of ghost so that you can upgrade your ghost so that you can do Mm -hmm. your slider. And you're kind of doing that progression all throughout, but it's these cards that really vary up your strategy and it's make you have to pick a direction of where am I going to go. I really appreciate games that can add in randomized elements like this that really add in a replay element that makes a difference. Mm -hmm. I feel like a lot of games add in, well, we're going to randomize this card deck or we're going to randomize these tiles that get placed out in a random order. Negligible effect. To claim replayability, right? Right. Of like, oh, there's thousands of permutations for the way this board can be laid out when really it doesn't really make that big of a difference, honestly. I really appreciate games that manage to find a way to do that in a manner that really does affect gameplay pretty drastically from play to play. I appreciate that a lot. Totally agree. One other thing that I would be interested to hear y'all's thoughts about, you know, you start the game with 12 action discs, which seems like a lot. At yeah. least when I played it the first time, I thought, oh man, I've got plenty, right? And you'll start to find as you take actions and your discs set in your player board, it gets tight pretty quick, yeah. especially if you're putting your action discs on action cards. You're just taking away actions from yourself. So then the rest action really begins to start to become important, right? Yeah. How do you, do you guys feel about that rest action and how they incorporated that token management into the game? I definitely feel like it is probably the second most important thing that you're doing in the game is managing your inventory because if you're not careful, you could face a turn in which there's nothing you can do about it. Yep. You can take one action or two actions and in a game that's about efficiency, not being able to take one of your three actions on your turn is devastating yeah. because it's going to put you so far behind everybody else. Yeah. Yeah, I think you covered it pretty well, Cameron. I found this mechanism to be pretty interesting, but also frustrating at times. But usually frustrating because of my own inability to manage it properly, right? Yeah. I think that token management is really important, but it can be frustrating. Yeah. Resting is a really good choice in this game. I agree with what y'all have said, because you'll find resting feels like a wasted action. Mm-hmm. And in a way it is, because when you rest, you're not doing anything on the board, right? And so at least I found myself wanting to try to delay resting as much as possible to try to be as efficient as possible, Mm -hmm. maximize my turns as much as I could. But what's interesting about this game is that when you don't rest, not only do you not get your disc back, but those actions are covered. Yep. And so you might find yourself in a situation where you're like, oh, I can use that ghost to do this thing or score that point. And then you look at that section of your board and it's covered. Right. And you were thinking... 
about resting the right. turn before. And because, you're like, man, I should have rested. Right. And I could have done this action this turn, but you didn't, right? Because your ghosts are different levels on, on right. the different action spaces. And then we want to make that clear, right? When you upgrade your ghosts, you're only upgrading one of those three tracks. You're not right. upgrading all of them. And so you might be looking at it going, I've only got one orange ghost, but three out of the five spaces are covered up and I can't use that ghost exactly. for anything. Yeah. Or I can only use them for the one thing that I don't need to do with them. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I always found myself questioning, oh, should I rest so that I free these action spots up in the chance that I might be able to be advantageous, right. but I'm not doing anything good this turn, right? right? I don't know. I love stuff like that in games. Some pretty cool things going on in this game. Is there anything you guys didn't like about the game? I think I have to mention the fight action. <laughs> I knew you would, because For... you can't handle stuff like this. <laughs> <laughs> For the obvious reason, but also for a less obvious reason. So the obvious reason, I think, is it's dice chucking, right? Each level of ghost has a different D level of die that you're rolling. So the blue ghost rolls a D4, and the red ghost rolls a, what, a D10? D12 or or something. Yeah, much better Uh, odds of being successful if you use a higher level ghost. And so I appreciate that odds. You can do that calculation and figure out what your odds are. But it can be really painful in a game that's about efficiency to have to take a chance on rolling a die and then just lose an entire action because of a die roll. That can be pretty painful. And don't do it. Well, right. Or set yourself up for success by one of the four different modification tokens. tokens. Yeah. Right, but that brings me to my second point about this action is that it felt redundant, the whole action, right? It's like, well, why am I going to risk doing this? I guess it's slightly faster, but the the end result is get a ghost token. And there are other ways to get ghost tokens. Unless right? there are action cards in the game that incentivize yeah, fighting. Right. Yeah, that's true. If it's tied yeah, to Cameron, you getting scare points, then it's extremely yeah, valuable to, you to be successful. You got a bajillion scare points on fighting. You, I, did, I didn't have to take the scare action the yeah. entire rest of the game after I got that couple of... It was actually two that were like working together for me. So right. every time I took it, I got like nine scare points. Exactly. And it was like, well, I'll just upgrade my dudes for free. And that's what saves That's why I love game. the scare points. And, <laughs> and it goes back to what you were saying, Jason. The game in itself would just be meh, but the action cards are what save it. They change it. It it changes how you play, and it makes certain actions that on the surface might seem like, that's crap. It's good for me, but it's not good for you. More desirable. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. So I had one observation. I feel like more so than most games that we review here at Hidden Gems, the rules were a bit complicated to follow. And maybe it's a fault of the iconography, perhaps. I feel like even the player tableau can get a bit confusing to follow, especially the fact that you're placing unmarked discs. They're just all going on these action slots. And so it can be hard to remember what you played on your last turn, what you've placed down on this turn. We had a lot of things like because you can place all three of your actions in the same turn, we had a lot of times where a player would start doing actions and they're like, (laughs) oh, you know, actually I want to do these in a different order. I'm going to do this instead. And it's like, I don't know what you just picked up, man. Like, I trust you, I guess, (laughs) you know. Felt very error prone. Yeah, oh, like yeah. A lot of like maybe we played this game and maybe you won, but who knows? I think because, we all made mistakes. Yeah. Probably. And if you don't like tick the box and it's like, how many actions did you take? You know, did yeah. you take four actions? Like, I don't know. So I felt like that could probably be managed a bit better, maybe a little bit more clarity on yeah how to track your turns i totally agree with you i think it can be a bit fiddly and i think because you have the potential to make amazing turns in this game (laughs) (laughs) 
Jason. Jason did this a couple times. You know, if you're not paying attention to what somebody's doing, they're just like, oh, and I score 22 points, and you're like, what the heck? All right, you're going to have to run us back throughout. I was like, hold on. And it's not that I didn't trust Jason, but or anybody that was doing that. I think we were all doing that to some degree, but I think this is the kind of game where even if it's not your personality, I think it would benefit the group and the table yeah. for you to announce what you're doing. Right. <laughs> because you can do some crazy things in your turn, and two, you might make a mistake. We were all messing up because yeah. of how fiddly the freaking game right. is, right? It's just better to be like, okay, I'm going to do this and move right. this, and somebody may, might be like, actually, yeah. your ghost level isn't high enough. You can't do that because right. we were doing that to each other constantly yeah we played twice the other night and had kind of an asterisk next to the first game because there was a clear mistake that was made at one point there was no way we could backtrack and correct it but even the second game i think it was legit (laughs) did you win no jason did no No, i won won both of them and i'm sure that i did not win the first one and i'm the more that i think about it becoming convinced that there's the possibility that i didn't win the second one either and that just feels yeah not great because we definitely knew what we were doing the second game but we were still making mistakes stumbling over stuff and that i think that is you know there is a degree to which you know we're learning the game but we're experienced game players we've played games more complex than this yeah and if on a second play in the same evening when you have experience having just played it you're still stumbling over things and making mistakes i think that says something i'm not exactly sure what but it says something (laughs) about i have that the way the game is designed i don't know exactly how to put my finger on why it's prone to making mistakes and letting things fly past that other games it, it was weird in that the, way I mean, there are several times people were like i'm gonna do this and we're like can't do that i'm gonna move it can't do that i'm gonna put this over can't do that you know you just need to be aware of that yeah in this game yep let's wrap it up with final thoughts yep cameron, cameron. okay even though we had a lengthier con section i'm gonna say halloween's a good game i feel like it's well balanced we look for tension in games here at hidden gems and to me i think halloween does bring some tension you can't count out a player bringing up the rear in this game, right? We saw that in one of our plays. Oh, gosh, Bill and no. I were in the lead most of the game, and Jason came from behind on the last turn, maybe. Cheated. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> And maybe. he beat us. And even though Chris, like, you know, even though he does this all the time, oh, I'm in last place. There's no way I'm going to win. <laughs> I can't win. Chris was right up there with the rest of us by the end of the game. And I think that's an engine builder in action, right? You Mm -hmm. just don't know the way someone's engine is going to end up turning out. Yep. I appreciate that in a game. I do think that it could benefit from a bit more clarity in the rules and iconography, as well as how turns are tracked on the player boards. And we've talked about that at length. Overall, I think Halloween's a good game and it deserves some play. This is a four for me. And you know, I want to say, I think the four rating has kind of come to mean for me that I'd like to explore it more. I know our mm-hmm. general pin is that it's a good game. And for me, I think a good game is one that I would be interested in playing more. Might not be like praising it to the high heavens and looking forward to playing it again. Like say, particularly the way that I want to play Jekyll and Hyde mm-hmm. more. But like if say other people that listen to this episode from our game group are like, oh, I want to try Halloween. I'd be like, let's do it. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I've mentioned before on this podcast that two of my most favorite games of all time are Dominion and Kingdom Builder. Mm. And the reason I love Dominion and Kingdom Builder so much is they do this thing where they give you an array, either an array of cards or an array of chits in Kingdom Builder, 
And before the game even starts, you must make an assessment of mm-hmm. the board and plot a path to victory. Mm-hmm. And I freaking love that in games. Right. I am a sucker for that in games. <laughs> I really am. And the main reason I like it is because every game feels different. Right. As Jason mentioned earlier in that night where we played two games back to back, they played totally differently. And the reason for that is because those action cards were eight totally new action cards. And the way that those cards interact with each other compels you to find a strategy in there to get ahead of your opponents. I freaking love stuff like that. After we finished the second game of this, and I was thinking about these action cards and thinking about how Jason came back from 25 points down and beat me, felt like I got kicked in the nards. I mean, I just was like, (laughs) what the heck just happened? It was in my brain all night. I was just thinking about it, thinking about it, thinking about it. I went to sleep. I dreamt about it. (laughs) I got up the next day. I was still thinking about the game. That is a good sign. Mm. The last game I can think of where I did that was Spectaculum. Wow. Right? So despite all the apparent cons I had in this game, you know, there's some things I didn't love about it that I mentioned in the review. I really liked this game. And again, the action card just really took it to the next Mm. level for me. I love stuff like that. I'm giving this game a five. I thought it was excellent. I am eagerly looking forward to playing this game again. All right. Just because I can't wait to see what the next eight cards are going to be. Right. And how it's going to change the way I play the game. Love that. The Love expansions. It. Can you just get like <laughs> 4,000 cards like in Dominion? There won't be no expansion for this game. Because <laughs> nobody plays it. But yeah, all that to say, I think it's pretty excellent. Yeah, I think you guys covered it pretty well in terms of what I had thought when I was thinking through this. This was a surprisingly crunchy Euro based on what I expected going into it. There was a lot more to think about. I think that those cards, like you said, Chris, make the game Mm -hmm. um, and make it really interesting from game to game to try to plot that path to victory. I enjoyed that a lot. I don't think I'm as over the moon about it as you are. I landed on a four for this one, and I think mainly that's probably because of some of the more finicky aspects of it and that error-proneness that we can't quite put our finger on why it is that way. But if this game came out on the table, I would play it for sure. So, settle on a four. Awesome. All right. If anyone's looking for Halloween, how could they get a hold of it? Yeah, so despite having come out in 2017, which is not that long ago, this game is surprisingly hard to find. (laughs) Unfortunately, it's not available at Noble Knight or any other online retailer that I found. Although there are a good number of copies on BGG, so you can't get it there. But whenever you can't find it online, it's getting on the rarish side. So okay. if you're thinking about pulling the trigger on, I would do it. Because this is one that could just disappear into obscurity like a Jekyll and Hyde. Hmm. It's, all seven... the, it's all the minis. <laughs> That's they, don't, right. they don't want to have to reprint the minis. That's right. 17 copies on BGG available. Check it out. Sounds interesting to you. Very good. Cool. Well, those are our thoughts on Halloween. Well, thank you for joining us on this Halloween-themed episode of Hidden Gems. And if you like what we're doing here, please remember it's a huge help to us if you'd leave us a rating or review on your podcast platform of choice. Follow us on our various social media platforms. We're particularly active on Instagram. Check out the BGG Guild if you want to interact with us or share a game that you think is a hidden gem. And if you're so inclined... Please consider supporting the show over at our Patreon at patreon.com slash hidden gems podcast. And until next time, I'm your host, Cameron. This is Chris. And I'm Jason. Thanks for listening. This episode of Hidden Gems number 19 was recorded in Raleigh, North Carolina on October 24, 2021.
Join us again in two weeks when we will be talking about the rise and fall of Tasty Minstrel Games and reviewing three lesser-known games from their catalog. Hidden Gems is produced and edited by Chris Alley, Cameron Lockie, and Jason Yonchliff. Our Board Game Geek Guild is monitored and managed by honorary Hidden Gems team member, Ghidorah. Our show's logo was illustrated by designer and artist, Caitlin Nieto. Check out her work on Instagram at It's Caitlin Nieto. We would love to hear from you. Feel free to join the discussion on our many social media accounts. You can find us on Facebook at Hidden Gems Board Game Podcast, Instagram at hiddengems.podcast, and Twitter at Hidden Gems Board. Disagree with one of our reviews? Have something you want to say about one of the games that we discussed today? You can also make your voice heard on our Board Game Geek Guild at boardgamegeek.com, guild number 3874. Once again, thank you for joining us on Hidden Gems, and until next time, fellow gem seekers, enjoy your games and enjoy your search. <laughs>